Hey y'all, it's Monica here with another installment of my best of series where I go back and I pull some of the best interviews I've done. Not too recently, it's gotta be beyond when you can remember. So this one is really one of my favorites. It's from May, 2021, it's Massimo Matsuko. He made the two absolute eye-opening, game-changing, must-watch documentaries, American Moon and September 11th, The New Pearl Harbor. He also did one that was really too hot to handle, I think got him in some trouble, Cancer, The Forbidden Cures, which I think, sadly, is going to be more and more relevant for people coming up in the near future. But if you listen to this, you will see that this guy was way, way ahead of the game. He saw what was coming in a big way, and I think it's just a really interesting re-listen or listen for the first time. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Monica Perez, and here today as our guest is Massimo Matsuko, someone who I have admired for a long time for the fantastic films he makes. Great films overall, but the documentaries that expose so many of the deep truths that are suppressed by the mainstream media, it's really bar none I think the best documentaries, the five hour 9-11, a new Pearl Harbor was fantastic. A new American century, this kind of shorter form one, which I think you did first was fantastic. American moon, which focused very specifically on photographers examining the evidence so-called of the moon landing. Fantastic. I mean, these are my go-tos. So when I met you on the union of the unwanted, I was so excited. I felt like I had to just uh, see if you could have a conversation Um, about things I've probably always wanted to ask you. So thank you so much for being here and welcome. Thank you. And I'm ready. Shoot away. All right. So number one question is, so you're, you were a a successful uh, director and you went, just kind of seemed to take a deep dive into what I would consider risky territory. What drove you to do that? I mean, did you, how did you get started in that? Okay, first I was, I was a fashion photographer for up until my, my 35, 36, until I was 35, 36. So that has nothing to do with the current career. At the same time, I fell in love with cinema and I started to write screenplays and make films. I made five uh, feature films in my life. And this takes us basically up to the year 2001. And in the year 2001, I was living in Los Angeles. I was living there because of uh, filmmaking. I was working as a screenplay writer and a, and, and a director in, in Los Angeles. I was studying. I, I didn't have a career yet. I only had made one film. I got a few jobs. You know, I was surviving, but I, was, I did not have a successful mm-hmm. career at all. So I didn't give up too much. And uh, when, when uh, September 11 happened, I just felt something was changing, meaning uh, Bush had just been elected, which did not make me particularly happy. And to see that, uh, I mean, on on, on rear thoughts and and thinking backwards, I wouldn't have been happy with with Al Gore either. But at the time, I was not that happy with with Bush. And and, uh, I just felt that there, there, there was more uh, to to life than just filmmaking because filmmaking in Los Angeles and you probably know 
takes away a lot, a lot of time from your life. I mean, it takes you three, four, five, six, seven years sometimes to make a movie if you really want to carry the movie from the initial project, from your own original script, all the way to the screen. And in most, in most cases, you never make it to the end or they take it away from you if it's good or it's not good enough to make it anywhere. So, I mean, it's, it's a very, very stressful um, environment to work in. At the same time, as the internet started to grow, very big, of course, and I started realizing the potential that internet had. So combine the two things, the interest I had in, in 9-11, because I, from the beginning, I felt that there was something really, really wrong with the official story of 9-11. I wasn't sure what, but I knew there was something strange because I had already been suspicious since the summer before. I remember actually one day in August 2001, I was sitting in you know my living room with my wife watching CNN, and I remember this news coming from from Afghanistan, uh, a so-called group of Taliban's of whom I have never heard before, suddenly blew up two statues, and suddenly they were the bad guys in, in the news. And I remember distinctly telling my wife, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the Americans. Uh, would find an excuse soon enough to invade Afghanistan because it, it, it seems to me like they're building these guys as such a bad guys. It was, was so overdone that obviously there is some reason for us, for the States to go there militarily. And this was August 2001. So when September 11th came, I was already suspicious from before. Oh my God, look at this princess. <laughs> now we have to go get right. this guy who's hiding in a cave in Afghanistan. Then exactly in the same place where one month ago the Taliban completely suspended the the trade of uh, opium, they completely yes. froze the opium yes. market, and I knew already then that the opium market is really a, a market to, uh, used by the CIA to finance uh, black ops, right. where you where you cannot get money from Congress. See, but how did you upper... know that? I don't know. Because of uh, Gary <laughs> Webb, or I, I, you know what I, I mean, like. I already had come to that conclusion for some reason. And, mm -hmm. and when I heard about the Taliban blocking the opium trade, I said, okay, uh, we're going to, we, I mean, America's going to have to go in. Right. Uh, I am American technically. I have a double, double passport, double nationality. So I could, I nice. could in some cases call you myself an American too. Although I've been acquired as a citizen. <laughs> so basically this is how it started. It started with a, with the curiosity of finding out what was wrong with 9-11. But I have to be honest. Uh, the first clue came to me, it would have been probably February 2002, when uh, a French website, uh, Thierry Maison, who was the very first person. Oh, who yes, brought, Voltaire did. Rezo Voltaire, he, now he runs Rezo Voltaire, yes. Yeah. Uh, Thierry Maison, the French-Libanese uh, journalist, uh, or journalist, uh, investigative journalist, came up with a, a, a website that was called this is the pentagon impact find a plane it was like it put it like a quiz like like a like a test can you find the plane so i started looking at the pictures and for the first time i realized that these pictures that were taken before the pentagon oh, had yeah. collapsed he was the first one to bring them out and i said there is no hole this i mean such a small hole how can a huge plane fit into that so that's how it started my curiosity but at the time i only thought that the Pentagon was was a fake attack. I, it never occurred to me that the Twin Towers could have been. And in fact, 
when somebody brought up for the first time, I don't remember who, that the Twin Towers had been uh, destroyed intentionally, my first honest reaction was, no, it can't be. And I remember thinking to myself, Americans would never do this to themselves. That's exactly what I thought. I couldn't come to terms with it because I thought, not that they couldn't, but that they wouldn't. It took me 10 years, and it's because of something that I saw that I could not deny. And I guess you, having a critical eye for photography, probably was a little closer to understanding, you know, not believing your own eyes when something didn't make sense. But, yeah, they wouldn't. Now, in that case, it was not photography. It was the fact that at at four in the afternoon, Los Angeles times, so I would say, what? At seven at night. Seven at night. No. In uh, New York. In New York, yeah, seven at night. So basically, 12 hours after the attacks, the name of Bin Laden was already circulating yeah. as, as the culprit. And I said, they don't even know who was on those planes. That You don't know because all you see is these planes going into the towers. Obviously, there's no remains that you can you know, ask, excuse me, what is your name? Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't find anything. So how do you even know who was really on those planes? The, the passenger lists came out, and there was no Arabic name on it. CNN and, and API, or, or uh, yeah, I think API and CNN, came out first in the afternoon with the passenger lists. There was no Arabic name. So I said, how could you ever? So I knew there was something there, you know, that was fishy. Then, of course, uh, the news was just going, Bin Laden, Bin Laden, Bin Laden. So it was obvious. But again, when, when for the first time I faced the idea that the Twin Towers, that somebody had to actually press a button and kill those 3,000 people in the Twin yeah. Towers, including policemen and firemen. Yeah. It was very hard for me to accept at first. Only after going through the process of analyzing the evidence did I become convinced of that. It was hard. It was hard. So, I, I mean, I feel the same way. I was really surprised. I, like, I, And it was only when the Boston Marathon bombing happened and I saw, I think it was Mueller or somebody get up there and say, like, we're looking for these two terrorists. And I knew that those guys or I had done a little research. Those guys were uh, w- associated with the CIA and lived like one mile from there. And I thought they had to know who those guys are. Like, they're just lying. And then I and I said, wow. So, like, if the Boston Marathon bombing wasn't what they told us it was, then. I guess maybe 9-11 wasn't either. And then all the scales fell off my eyes and there's no turning back, unfortunately. But then you have to take the next step. So I had a radio show on the radio, like terrestrial radio, and I just was too stupid to even think like it was bad. And I immediately went out and started saying, oh, this isn't really what happened. Like if you read the newspaper articles, like they don't match up and this guy is this guy. Uh, But you had to make a decision to spend a lot of time and money to uh, expose this, and I, I, you know, did you get resistance at first, or you know, how did you? Because I'm sure a lot of people have had that impulse, like I'm going to take action, but you really did it and saw it through. Well, I made three films on 9/11, three documentaries. The first one was in 2006. It was a little bit of the equivalent of loose change in America, but it was done in Italian. And it was actually, this was the surprise, it was actually brought, I sent it to a, a friend in Italy who works for a Channel 5 Berlusconi television. Yes. And he actually saw it and says, my God, this is shocking. We should air this. And I said, <laughs> air this? <laughs> you know what you're talking about? Right. Oh, it's all well done. We're going to air this. And he did. Yes. So 
imagine the next day what happened. I mean, the next day in Italy, it was 2006, everybody suddenly was discussing 9-11. Up until then, on, wow. on mainstream media, there was no discussion. It was relegated to the, to the internet. Only but on isn't the internet. Berlusconi mainstream media? Wasn't that mainstream? Oh, man. Oh, you're he, saying this he, is the first time. Right. This was a shocker even for them. Yes. They it. had no idea what would happen. Wow. But the guy who decided to take the chance and to air, the guy I wrote to, and he, I sent the movie to, yeah. and who runs an important show, uh, let's say it's, it's like, a, I don't know, a Larry King of, of yeah. Italy who suddenly decides he's going to give, you know, uh, air my, my film. Uh, this guy took a chance, of course. He was attacked, obviously, the next day yeah. by all the, especially the right-wing conservative media, but even also from the left. What is this now? We are we giving room to these conspiracy theories? Uh, how uh, how 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 do we? Where are we going to end up? If we, you know, and, and and he said, and I called him up the next day and I said, I told you they would kill you, and he said, No, they're not going to kill me. We had six million, six million people audience, on a country of sixty million, so ten percent of Italians were actually watching you. He said last night on this thing. Wow. Nobody. Nobody's going to touch me. Right. And that taught me a great lesson. The great lesson is the mainstream media is only sensitive to one thing be besides the, 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 the mainstream discourse, money. If the audience is interested enough, they don't care. They'll go. And for, I would say, three, four months, we had shows every week on Italian mainstream media on prime time at night discussing 9-11. I mean, it got to a point, this, is, this was unique. N nowhere else in Europe it happened. In France, you couldn't talk 9-11 on television. In Spain, Germany, England, impossible. It was taboo. In Italy, it was over the, all over the place. It got to a point that they would call, this, this, the, the, the office of this TV station, Berlusconi station, would call me up like at three in the morning because in Italy, they, yeah. you know, they don't, they don't care about the jet. <laughs> different. Uh, Mr. Luzzo, oh, I'm sorry, we woke you. Oh, no, it's yeah. okay, it's okay. Care. It? Uh, would you have like, is there any other airplane that fell anywhere that we can do another show on? I mean, is there only four planes, right? There's, there's not a fifth plane that we can do another show on. And he says, no, I'm sorry, we ran out of planes. I mean, we did all the shows that we could. On all is, that, is that how come you had a five-hour documentary? Because that was, it was great. No, no, no. no. Okay. The five-hour documentary came uh, in 2013. It took a long I, time to put together all that information. I but have to say, you're, you're really answering a question for me because I was in Italy. We took our kids to Rome. They're taking Latin. So the closest thing we could do is take them to Rome. And I'd never been to Rome before. And my husband got a, uh, a tour guide. And unlike our experience in France and England, when I say to everybody, I say to every Uber driver, everyone everywhere, I always say, basically, you know... <laughs> You know, do you know about the deep state? Like, do you know, like, are you awake in any way? And that chick, totally normal chick, was 100% like, obviously, 9-11 was an inside job. And I was surprised. I was like, wow, maybe people in Italy know which way is up. And I couldn't figure out why, if it was cultural or what. But I think it was probably, I mean, obviously, it was just you. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> so that's, see, because that's the thing. I have a friend, a European friend who had, uh, he was the one that we had a party to watch American Moon. 
And um, he told, so he turned me, I didn't know that was yours. I knew your other stuff, but I didn't know that one. And he called me when I told him that you, I was going to talk to you. And he wanted me to ask, like, he said that in Europe, your shows, your views, everything, people are much more aware of your work than they are here. And, and your work is about the U S like, what is your, is it just because that's where it was broadcast or, or are we more, do we suppress it more or what? Well, let me put it this way. First of all, I, I never had a presence on the internet in America, even though I lived in America for 20 years. But because of the language barrier, I mean, I speak fluent English, but not, I'm not like an American. So I, I never wanted to compete with the very good bloggers that you guys have and the, the very good filmmakers that you guys have. So I decided I would take care of Italy, which is my country after all. And I'd be satisfied with that. So even though I was living there, I was publishing in Italian and Got I made it. the films in Italian and, and, I, and it was focused on Italy and it did work. I mean, for in this particular yeah. case, it worked. Yeah. That's really, I mean, that gives me an insight and it, it leads to a question I wanted to ask you that I, I, with the thing I struggle, so my show is called The Propaganda Report and on a daily basis, I take the news of the day and peel away what I think their agenda is. So there are some facts, there are some lies, but it's all there because there's an agenda. I try to figure out what the agenda is and also how the hierarchy works. Like is the media, because like look at COVID or even look at 9-11. So Bush and the neocons did 9-11, but Obama covered it up. COVID, um, the policies make no sense if you look at the details of the science and everything, yet left, right and center around the world, they had the same COVID policies. So a lot of that I think is because of media control. There is a hierarchy, there is an agenda, but is there any way around it? Is there any way to break through? So you had one guy who took a chance, probably without asking anybody to put it on channel five. I had a program director who, when it came to that Boston Marathon bombing show, my producer said, people will think you're crazy. But my program director said, just tell your story, you know, try not to sound crazy. And when he left that position, I lost my show because he was the only one who had the courage to do it. But he did it and he had the courage to do it. And there was some of that. Any possibility of any open discussion on any of these controversial issues yeah. has completely disappeared from, from uh, mainstream media, television. Here, at least, I, I would say the same in the, in the states. Yeah. But here, definitely. Uh, again, the same film I showed in two thousand and six would, would not even be considered for showing right now. Uh, yes. The, the problem is that you, you're asking about hierarchy, and that is really the the point, the focal point. I'm mm -hmm. going to try and give you what I think in a, a schematic way. What I think in the COVID in the situ COVID situation what I think the hierarchy is and why there's very little we can do unless we realize that this is the hierarchy because it's hidden and this is the problem. Uh, at the bottom, you have the citizens, okay? All of us, millions of people who wake up every morning and asking and wondering whatever's gonna help, whatever's yeah. gonna happen with them and, and, their, and their day and their future. People, the citizens receive informations and what they're told to do from two entities, the media and the government. They are the ones who talk to us, okay? The media talks to us through television. The government talks to us through laws and through, and through decisions, which are also 
than uh, transmitted by the media. So who controls the media and who controls the government? Where do they get their information? This is really the problem because we can only see one floor above. Yes, so we can right. See, we can only see the feet of the person above, which is the media, but we don't know who's controlling them. Same for the government. Right. On the side, on, on, on top of these two, which are on top of us, yes. you can put a big, big, big square or rectangle that says Big Pharma. How, do, how does Big Pharma control both the media and the governments? It controls the media in two ways. One, with money, budget. 40%, I think, of the total income of publicity for televisions comes from pharmaceutical companies. Which you know means- what's, yeah. Go ahead. What's funny about that is that you can't actually choose to buy that stuff. They advertise it to us, but we don't make the choices. We have to go to the doctor and the doctor just gives it to us. So the ads right. can't be about getting us to buy stuff. It's about controlling the media. Well, yeah, of course, of course, because immediately if any television show would have a serious discussion about COVID, I mean, a, a real pro and con, right. immediately they would pull the ads. Right. They would call it conspiracy theories, whatever. They, they use whatever label they want and they pull the ads. So yeah. one way for the big pharma to, co- to control the media is the money. The other way to control is by deciding who they send on the various talk shows to talk about the COVID. I mean, you get, I don't know your names out there. I mean, from Fauci on, you must have yeah. at least 20 virologists and experts yeah. who are always the same and always appear on every channel and repeat the same message over and over and over again. And you will never have on the same shows, for example, one Luc Montagnier, or Nobel Prize for Medicine for HIV discovery, who is against vaccines, who has never been, is never going to be invited on any major television show, either in Europe or in America, because of that. So by controlling the, 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 the income, the, the, the budget, and by controlling the people who go on television, Big Pharma controls the television message. Now, how do they control the government? Through the, uh, um, uh, the American one is called FDA, the, Pharma, the, the mm-hmm. Food and Drug Administration. The Food and Drug Administration in America, in Europe is called EMA, European Medicine Agency. Then each country has their own pharmaceutical agency, which means they are the ones who control and approve the the medicines that can be used in a certain country, okay? So FDA controls all the medicines that that goes to to the American market. EMA, the European one, listens a lot to the FDA, which is the biggest one, and then decides for all countries in Europe. These companies, we are thought, we are taught, we are told that these companies are there for our protection and to make sure that we don't get any bad medicine that has not been tested. So they're there to guarantee our own safety. The truth is that they're not. They're filled with people who come from Big Pharma through the system of it's called revolving doors. And they do exactly and only what Big Pharma wants. So if, for example, you have a new treatment that comes up for COVID, for example, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, or uh, I don't know what, what came up in, in America. We have men. FDA will not approve it. It's as simple as that. So they control. Then the government says, well, it's not approved, so you can't use it. So through the pharmaceutical agency, the FDA, 
Big Pharma controls what the government tells us that we can or cannot do. And you can't even talk about it. They actually oh. ban you from saying stuff. Like they, there's a ban. Yeah. Obviously. Because of the internet. When, when they created the internet, they didn't know oh. what kind of monster they were creating. Oh, and I think they did know. Well, or, or did they realize oh, later? Oh, oh, yeah. You're saying, I think it was a limited hangout. Like, I think they put it out there to get us all to put all our information on, knowing that they needed to build trust to get compliance and reliance. And they knew full well that they were, they could then like censor it, I think. Well, probably now, this is what happens now. But when it was created in the 90s, ARPA, the military yeah, invented it. I know. Uh, I, I'm not sure that they knew what they were. Right. They were okay. Doing. Well, because, that's another thing yeah, that I wanted to ask you about. But is, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, it's like another big picture thing, which is like you said, the past eight to 10 years, something like that. And I agree with you. Like it's accelerating, it's exponential how much power and concentration there is. And you're saying you're not sure that ARPA really knew what they were doing back then. And then I'll go back even to the sixties. I tried to watch the RFK thing, the new uh, Dallas that you made. It was so upsetting to me. I really couldn't get through it, but the sixties stuff was, I will do it. Cause I'm, it, it's just exactly the answers we need, but the 60s, like you, you hear about the CIA and COINTELPRO and Gloria Steinem had a relationship with the CIA. These people like uh, um, Mick Jagger had a relationship with Tavistock Institute. The kind of people who I would think are at the top of the hierarchy were entrenched in stuff like the counterculture. And I wonder how much of that did they set in motion or know they could control, and how much of it was a reaction to natural sociological forces? I mean, my question is, um, I, and I think we might agree on this, is that the level of, of control and micromanagement has just literally gone up exponentially, that, that there was some natural forces back in the 60s, I, and you're saying even into the 90s, now I feel like it's total control, and that's what they're ushering in. But do you think that is it... You know, I just, I wonder how powerful these guys are. I think it's both ways. It's both proactive and reactive. Meaning they certainly have ideas, very, very dirty ideas of what they want to do to humanity, which doesn't automatically mean they can succeed in imposing their ideas. So they kind of put it out there and then see what happens. So they push, push, the direction in one way, then they wait and see what happens, and they correct their 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 course as they go. I think it's the same as, for example, now with COVID. COVID is, in my opinion, and I believe in in many of your 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 viewers' opinion, it, it was a pre-organized uh, situation. Okay. But that's what so, one reason I think I lost my job is that as soon as Event 201 came out, I said, buckle your right. seatbelts. We are in for a ride. And that was it. It was in Atlanta. Right. My show is in Atlanta where the CDC is. And that okay. was it. So, yes, we all know. <laughs> okay. So, basically, yeah, but that doesn't mean because just because it was pre-planned, it doesn't mean it's going exactly as they meant it to go. So, this is why I say they, they're both proactive and reactive. They correct the course. For example, nobody would have expected that we would have, at least in Europe, we had a major, major drawback for with a AstraZeneca vaccine. You don't know much about this, probably. 
Uh, no, I, have, I have been following it. The blood clots yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have uh, Pfizer and Moderna, which yeah. have not been highlighted for particularly bad uh, side effects. In yeah, Europe, Johnson and Johnson, a, yes, but that's Johnson, the Johnson, same yes. tech as yes. AZ. Yeah. Because it uses the same technology yes, as, that's right. as, as yeah. AstraZeneca. Here has been a major, major, major bump to their plan okay. because uh, they started vaccine, vaccinating full-time in January and February, then the problem with AstraZeneca happens, everything stops, everything froze. Some countries just said, thank you, but no thank yeah. you. Uh, and this stopped them in the tracks. So they had to adjust their course. This is what I'm saying is both proactive and reactive. How did they adjust the course? By First of all, by forcing the EMA, which is the European uh, Medical Agency, the FDA of Europe, uh, by to say that, oh yeah, we have to, they finally had to admit that the vaccine does cause death. Yes, in some very, they didn't very want to. Yeah. First, they didn't want to, they were reluctant, but then the cases kept piling up and people just stopped taking it. So said, okay, fine, 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 fine. Yes, it does kill some people, but it's only one in a million. The, the benefit overrides the risk, yes. so keep taking it. This is what I call adjusting the course. The question, the big question here, I don't know in the States how is it going, but the big question here is, when will they be satisfied enough with having vaccinated enough people, percentage, maybe 80%, mm -hmm. that they will actually let go on their restrictions, that they keep using the restrictions as, 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 as a carrot to force people to vaccinate? Here, we, we can't go to restaurants after, after 9 o'clock at night. We have to be home by 10, like little kids. Gosh. Does anyone oh, no. go to restaurants before nine o'clock at night? Yeah, they actually, people go to eat at seven <laughs> fifteen. So they destroyed your culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they have to. You have to leave with a piece of pizza in your mouth yeah. because you have to be home <laughs> by ten o'clock exactly. Otherwise, you get a ticket. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that's... they use that. Oh, we might extend that until eleven. The the subtext being, if your guys are good enough, and keep vaccinating. So the real question here now is. Up to what point will they feel satisfied that, that they had enough people vaccinated that can actually let it go until yeah. it starts again? Because as we know already, the, the CEO of Pfizer already told us that we're going mm -hmm. to have to get used to get one, one vaccine a year at least. So yeah. if he tells us so, we know it's going to be so. So here I feel like they, they are really rushing us and I felt like they wanted people to rush. So they all did it at once before they started realizing that it was bad and that eventually they would have to give up on the idea of like actually mandating it. So yeah. I, I'm with you, like I, there, there's definitely strategy there, but there's also, I think you're absolutely spot on on like course corrections because there's a, something I've noticed recently, a lot of documents have come out, but the first one, the date on the one that I found, like the first one was a 2010 Rockefeller Foundation scenario analysis of how to, how to, it was really, I forget what they called it, but it was how to push lockstep. technology. Yeah, it was, it was lockstep. lockstep, hack attack. There were four. Lockstep was one yeah. of them. Hack attack was another one, right? And it was about, if you read what it was about, it was about pushing technology into poor countries, no matter what the world atmosphere was. And they did four scenarios. So they had a goal. And then there's a recent one. It was called SPARS from 2017 from Johns Hopkins. And it was just like COVID. And it was about all the 
the ways to deal with counter information. Like if you had a famous person who was against the vax, how would you deal with that? So they did all these what were called scenarios in 2017. And that 2010 thing was also scenarios. And it was the same company. It was called the Global Business Network. And they were the Esalen Institute guys, if I if I recall correctly. And what they did, what they do is they take the scenarios of all the different things that might happen and how under radically different kind of what feels like radically different regimes, cultural or media or whatever, they can still do what they want to do, which is get you to take a vaccine or get you to adopt technology. And I feel I even felt like that's what they did during the 2016 presidential election, where it could have been Ted Cruz, it could have been Donald Trump, and it could have been Hillary. And I think they were ready for any one of those guys to win. And it wouldn't be like they would get the same thing out of it, but they would just maybe they have 10 things on their wish list. And depending on who won, that's what they'd get on their wish list. And I feel like they give somebody like Trump, um, I don't know, they gave him, uh, I guess, censorship, like censorship is what's come down under the Trump regime with Biden. I think we'll probably get war in Syria again. Uh But they look at different things and they take what they need to, depending on how the atmosphere is. But I could you be get war in Syria only if you're lucky, because oh. with, with, with the ways things, I don't know how much information you have on what's going on with uh, Ukraine, but uh, not we lately much. Very close, yeah, we follow very closely what what the Russians say, and believe me, they are not they're not up for 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 joking anymore. Uh, they are so fed up the Russians with being completely surrounded in all ways and forms, psychologically, economically, militarily, that they just can't take it anymore. Uh, The Russians, uh, the Ukraine, a document was leaked in Ukraine, from Ukraine, uh, from which we could learn that the actual president of Ukraine was preparing a military action to take back the Donbass area, which is the the conflicted area. Yeah, cauldron and all that. And, and Crimea. As soon as that came out, the Russians put out, sent their, their tanks and their military armaments right. all, all, all around the, the, the edge of the, of the boundary with, with Ukraine and Crimea. The escalation was close to an actual war conflict. It was stopped short of becoming a war conflict. None of that was really out in the news. I don't know. What, what year are you talking about? Recent no, or no, way back? No, recent. Two weeks ago. Recent. Oh, because yes. that kind of happened when Biden was vice president. We have leaked phone calls where he says, hey, buddy, don't oh, no, start no. starting, you know, but to scrum it up in Crimea, it would be insane. So it's the same problem continued right now. We talked right. about two weeks ago. Right. I no, mean, I hear you. But that's there was, I, on the I, Internet. There were yeah. there were dozens of videos of. Russian tanks going on trains towards the borders, and Russians don't move their tanks for no reason. Okay. So you got close. Nobody knows this, but we got very close to a military uh, uh, conflict in the area already. I don't know how it was stopped. For now, it's stopped. But, you know, when I say you'd be lucky if it's only the war with Syria, it's because of this. Well, that is part of that, I think, too. Like the Syria thing, Ukraine thing is about, like, gas pipelines and... I mean, I think they're related a little bit, well, but it, but 
Yeah, what? Get Syria's mother about gas and 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 the Middle East and Israel asking the United States yeah. to get rid of uh, Assad. Uh, Ukraine is more about uh, Ukraine is a huge huge country which stands now in in equilibrium in 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 balance between Western Europe, which is us, Italy, France, Germany and yeah. Russia. They used to be leaning towards Russia. It was moved now after the revolution in 2014 it was moved towards NATO. Yeah. But the Russian says, okay, you can take Ukraine, but you're not taking this part of Ukraine, which is full of Russian speaking people. That's right. why they created that. So that problem has to do with the balances in Europe and not so much with the gas. In, okay. In now that makes me ask about the big picture again. It seems to me that Putin can play ball with international bankers, just like the rest of them. And I and like Putin has a history with Yeltsin, who was Clinton's, you know, guy or whatever. Like, I always wonder, especially with Russia, how independent are they? And I think that way about China, too. Like, at what point is there a, a club of elites that reaches into even those countries? Or do we really have like a trilateral world where the gloves are off and we better watch out? I mean, is there does the hierarchy go that far? You're you're getting close to a triangular. Tri, how did you call it? Triangular. Trilateral. Trilateral. World. Except yeah. two of the three are getting together. China and Russia, not wow. more than a month ago, officially stated that they're allying each other against the uh, prevarication. I don't know if you say prevarication. Yeah, lies. Against, no, the intrusion oh. of the United okay. States in the rest of the world. So they, for the first time in history, China and Russia officially at a meeting in, in Beijing, the, their, their foreign ministers, both their foreign ministers stated on the same st stage that they will ally against America's uh, bully, bulliness. Okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is not a small declaration. We're not talking about two little countries lost in the middle of the Pacific. This is China and Russia saying, be careful, because if you keep with this politic of intrusion in our own business, we're not going to like it. So, and I'm sure that in America, you don't know much of this because of course no. they wouldn't tell you. Obviously, Well, here's the thing. You. It's hard for me to try to sift through the propaganda to understand, you know, there's a lot of anti-Chinese rhetoric, but then the Chinese guys were at the CDC meeting where they plotted event 201. So, how you know it's very hard to know at what point we're cooperating with them and we're ginning up what appears to be a conflict just to i don't know enhance our defense budget it's very hard to sift through real geopolitical stuff and the kind of propaganda they give us to change you know how we look at our budget or that kind of thing yeah i don't think that in the states you have any possibility to be fed the proper information unless you go straight to right. the Russian sources and you balance the two. Yeah. Because I'm not saying that the Russians are always right. And, and I mean, even yeah, the RT and, stuff was propaganda, but Voltaire net, I always like to read that. Okay, if you take as, RT and take away 70%, take, keep 70% of what RT says. Yeah. And you pretty much get a balance of what's going on, but you need to read them because otherwise the, the, the U S propaganda is, I mean, the Russian is always the bad guy. And here in you, the problem is that the United States is using Europe against Russia, meaning they're forcing us to impose sanctions to Russia yes. 
because they say, you know, either we you're with us or with them. And of course we say, oh, no, 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 we're with you, of course, because, you know, they own our countries. Yes, that's what I America. think, yeah. Like so, Merkel so and stuff. This, this, we are really between a rock and a hard place. But really, 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 technically, yeah. that's it. And, and, and I don't know how long Europe can hold the squeeze. I mean, the situation here is really not bad. We, we, we are being forced to impose sanctions on Russia, which hurts us. For example, right. Italy had a great export-import with Russia before this problem, before, you know, in, in the last four or five years. Since U.S. imposed the sanctions and had imposed, uh, forced Europe to impose sanctions on, on Russia, we are losing millions of dollars every day of lost trade with Russia. So it's, it's really hurting is everybody. This, is this just because we want Europe to buy liquefied natural gas from us? Like, how simple is this? That's that simple. That simple. The main contention here is the so-called Nord Stream. It's, yeah. it's, it's a project of a gas pi pipeline that is supposed to feed Europe from Russia through the Baltic Sea. So looking at the map, you're looking at this way, yeah. from the Baltic down along Scandinavia. This should reach into Germany, and from Germany should feed all Europe. It's called the Nord Stream 2. There's already a North, North Stream 1. They're planning to double it. U.S. doesn't want Germany to complete the job. Right. And they're forcing sanctions. The whole Navalny thing, for example, I know you, you, you might have heard of that. It's the whole yes, yes. concoction that was made up just to total have an excuse. Bull. Yeah, total. Yeah, to have an excuse to impose sanctions on Russia. Yeah. So those who are hurting the most in Europe are in Europe. And we're so stupid. And I have to say that, that we don't realize that. We are so committed to being friends with the Americans, you know, here, that we don't realize that we are the ones who are ending up paying the, the highest price after all. But as far as we, we're concerned, like there is a full-on war on the American people from our own elites. Like I don't, and I don't look, the, like the way that they have, they're ginning up protests and conflict to pit us against each other so we don't see their empire building it's okay. reaching new heights, I think. You don't think so? The war on people, you mean? Their war on our uh, on our society, like they're on democracy. They don't want oh, yeah. us to to see what they're up to, so they pit us against each other with any everything from the Black Lives Matter movement to the January sixth, you know, so called insurrection, all this stuff. That I mean, we're a rich country where people don't really want that much actual stuff. It should be hard to get us to riot, but they they want us to riot. It seems to me so that we don't actually look at the real policies. They're bankrupting the country, for example, like really, truly bankrupting. How are they going to get out of $30 trillion worth of debt? I mean, it's hard for me to see the very big picture, but I feel like uh, it's, it's a very small group of people or entities that are orchestrating what's happening in the West. And, yeah. and we're getting dumbed down every minute where our critical faculties are being replaced by emotional responses. And uh, it's hard to see through this stuff because we're it's just distracted. What, what's the name of your show again? Propaganda? The propaganda, yeah, obviously. It's the propaganda. It's called manipulation. There you go. Yeah.
But I, but I feel like who, you know, if you had to put a name on who it was, who's doing it, 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 and I hear what you're saying as far as the COVID thing, it's for sure big pharma, I get that. But we also, with the Middle East, I always thought of it as the kind of big three of finance, energy, and defense. And then like next to that is big farm, big pharma, and big tech. And I mean, is it the same people it's, on the boards? You know, what is? Yeah, by, by now it's not big tech or big pharma, it's big money. By now yeah. you have this, this- Even big uh, philanthropy is in on it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, big philanthropy is nice. Yeah. No, you have this, this groups, the, the invest, investing groups, I don't know you call them, hedge funds? Yeah. Uh, okay, which basically, I mean, BlackRock has more money than I think 50, <laughs> 50 countries in the world. There's 50 countries at least out of 180 or 190 countries we have. 50 of them have less money than BlackRock has. Okay, so imagine the power that one of these groups has, and they own part of AstraZeneca, right. part of uh, Pfizer, part of uh, big oil, part of this, part of big tech. It's the big financial groups that, and they don't have a face. They don't have a name. They do, but their names change and, and the system remains the same. So so if there is a an actual battle going on between, let's just call it the West, and if you, the Rus Sino-Russian alliance or something like that, if that really is the top, that there isn't a, like, it isn't something above that, if that's really the top, are the Russians and the Chinese fighting a good fight? Or are they just fighting to be the one on top? No, they're fighting to be left alone. Neither Russia nor China have a desire to expand geographically. I mean, yes, Russia took Crimea back, but it belonged to them already. It was full of Russian-speaking people. So because of the Maidan Square revolution, the so-called... Oh, I totally get that. I, I wouldn't even call okay. Ukraine a revolution. We did a coup against their exactly. democratic... I did Thank a lot you. of work on that at the time. And even with this Ukraine thing that came down and got Trump impeached, I, I thought it was to cover up Biden doing much worse than that, that nobody... It just took the eye off the ball. It was, it was the Democrats, just by coincidence. But the Ukraine thing was Victoria Nuland. I got that whole thing. Okay. So Russia has no expansion desires. China does not want to expand geographically, but it's expanding economically. They're right. buying huge chunks of Africa one at a time. I mean, they're buying countries. Yes. They have so much money in Africa invested. So yeah. they're expanding. So they're still not conflicting with the United States there, but it's getting close to a point where this is mine and this is yours. And there's nothing else left. Of course, those who suffer are the poor people of Africa who have the richest riches in on, on I Earth. I know. They should be the richest the people in the people. world. I yeah, see. This is, this it's is, this sick. Is, this is, yes. So funny enough, like you're answering two questions for me just by explaining that perspective. And one is, why is there just an unceasing 24-7 from all directions barrage of propaganda on us? I don't have a perspective from Europe, but in the United States, you cannot move I mean, everybody has a screen in front of their faces. They literally can't walk down the street without the phone in front of their face. And I've heard U.S. government strategists talk about how quickly they can penetrate the minds of the youth. Within seconds, they can send a message. 
right into their brains and they do it. And it's just constant propaganda to the point where it almost feels desperate. And I couldn't understand why they would have to do that when it appears to me from the COVID thing that they that the entire world is under the control of a single thought, you know, Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum. But maybe they aren't. Maybe if there is some pushback from Russia and China, then maybe maybe the propaganda is a sign of hope that they're too desperate to let it let it to relax. They definitely have their claws on the West, but not on on Russia, not on China, not on India. And mind you, these three countries together account for more than half the world population. China is yeah, a, a sure. billion and a half. India is a billion two thousand. I mean, we're, we're we're there. You know, we're just about half. So no, they don't have control over everybody. But and they they still have not established full control on the West either. Which is why they're using now this this vaccine strategy, because it's the first step to a real dictatorship. Only by getting under control all the citizens who orderly go and get vaccinated, by getting control all the doctors until no one has anything to say against Big Pharma until this is done, they don't have full control of the population. They control the media already, but there's still a lot of free thinkers. So, uh, yeah. So what are we doing? (laughs) <laughs> well, well, I what I you did. Make, I knew this uh, question was coming. <laughs> the, that's always the last question. But the the cancer cures documentary that you made very interesting. That obviously you have have done some work on big pharma, the medical element to the control structure. When you look at the vaccine, the push for the vaccine, the vaccine isn't just a vaccine. It isn't just to get people to line up and take their medicine, get their shot. It's mostly gene therapy. And that's uh, that's significant. Do you do have you run into anything that's rung a bell to you about how the medicine itself is an element of the control? We have a lot of uh, clues about that. We have no proof, no proof, of course, no evidence, no, no solid evidence. But there's a lot of suspicion, especially when they talk about implanting the, they call it uh, quantum dots technology. Have you heard of that? Quantum dots. It's it's like a little, it's like a little. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. A little square thing. Forgive me for my. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. Little square, square thing with little pins, very, very, very small pin that you actually press on your skin, so it penetrates just very lightly. You don't feel any pain, and you wear that, and that stuff can be controlled remotely. It can actually release a medicine in your own body by remote control. So if you if you haven't heard anything about this, look up Nothing. quantum dots technology. This is one very, very, very scary um, new toy that they, they, that they're uh, trying to, to develop right now. That I think is very scary, more than a microchip itself, because this quantum dots technology can actually interfere. And of course, if it can release a medicine in your body, for example, it can do a lot of things also, if it can be interactive, okay? If it has the capacity to interact with your own system, 
then they really control you. I was thinking that the the vaccine technology, the that whole thing, I, I coined this expression independently healthy. Like I don't need to be independently wealthy if I'm independently healthy. And the more they do stuff like, or the more like people get diabetes or have to be on heart medicine, or maybe these vaccines will affect your immune system, the more you're actually dependent on the healthcare system, which I think is the ultimate goal. So stuff like this could potentially make you a slave to big pharma in a way that, that just anything that's, else could not. That's certainly their wet dream. That yeah. is certainly their wet dream. Whether they succeed completely or not is really up to us. Okay, so what do how, we do? <laughs> yeah, it depends on how many of us become aware of this in which amount of time. This is a race. They're racing to close the gates before the cows run out, so to speak. We are the cows. Some of us have already run out of the cage, but there's not enough of us. If more keep coming, they do not care. They cannot close the gate. They will actually lose and lose bad. So it's, it's, it depends from how fast the information that we handle will reach more and more people. If anybody, if every American, every American, let's imagine, could wake up tomorrow morning and realize all together, 300 million Americans at the same time for 10 seconds, they would realize what is big farmers trying to do to us with the COVID story. By tomorrow night at noon, tomorrow at noon, big farmer is dead. It's gone. If every American, yeah. I, I do. The problem is not every American will wake up tomorrow morning thinking that. Remember what, what one president, I think it was uh, the one in World War One, the one who actually authorized the, the FedEx, the, 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 the Fed. Uh, I think it oh, was. Oh, yeah, Wilson. Uh, Wilson. Woodrow Wilson. I think, I think it was him. I don't know. One president in that period of time before dying, he said, if the American people realize tomorrow what, the, the, what a fraud the banking and money system is, there will be a revolution tomorrow night. And this was 100 years ago. So the whole problem is information. He was lucky, or the banks were lucky, that not everybody understands that problem. If they did, the banks would collapse tomorrow. Absolutely. There could be no more. You see, this game can only go on until people believe in it. People stop believing it, there's no more game. This is why I put all my energy yes. into, into spreading what I believe to be the correct information because that helps people wake up and say, wait a minute. Of course, we are still a very, very strong minority, but I've been on the internet for 16 years now, 17 years since I started my first website. And I have seen the, the population change dramatically in numbers, in percentages. I would say that if today we have a 10, 15% of people who are relatively awakened, quote unquote, 15 years ago would have been 1%. I mean, 15 years ago, I felt really lonely just to... yeah. You know, put it personally, it was yeah, like, yeah. oh my God. Right. You know, I would write an article and I get 200 views. And, oh my God, 200, okay, 210. Yeah, yeah. Now I do an article, I get 30, 20, 30, 40, 50,000. It's a big difference. And uh, 
there's a lot going on. And, and this is a mechanism that feeds itself. So the more people know, the more people will know. So, so seems, what are you yeah, working on now? I'm what is your a, next thing? I'm working on a video. It's not going to be an actual documentary. It's a video about an hour long, almost finished. It's called uh, COVID, The Forbidden Cures. I've made a, a selection of all the cures that have actually come out in the last year for COVID that have been suppressed, ignored, or canceled completely, or, or you know, hydroxychloroquine is obviously the first one, but not the only one. We had the uh, plasma therapy that came out. It was successful. It was killed. Uh, ivermectin came out. It was killed completely. So by putting all this together, I wish that people realize that we don't have to die from COVID. Or they the vaccine. Us. Oh, well, no, that's the... Even before you get to the vaccine, I'm saying you don't have to die from the vaccine because there's a therapy for the disease. You don't need a vaccine. We don't need the vaccine. Potentially. Exactly. We don't need to get <laughs> to that point. Exactly. So I hope that that helps some people understand that we really are, are being kept locked up or partially locked up because the whole point is to get people to vaccinate. And if they realize that it's not necessary to be locked up, maybe something will change. I hope. Well, I, I can only one, do what I can do. <laughs> I had one question about American Moon, and I, I hate to uh, go backwards, go but I just had one last thing. I wanted to know, uh, I always thought the idea that they faked the moon landing, I felt like the argument was that they faked the moon landing because they wanted to win the Cold War, and I felt like that was too noble a motive. And I just wondered if you, in all your research, had an opinion of why they did it. Yeah, I have an opinion. Um, they did not fake it because they wanted to. They actually tried to go. Okay. So believe me, up until at, at least 1960, 1966. So Kennedy declared, we'll go to the moon by the end of the de decade in 61. He gave basically NASA nine years to go there. For the first six years, up until 1966, they were actually trying. The closer they got to the deadline, and the more problems they kept having, they realized that the window was narrowing more and more, and they were never going to make it. At the same time, they had developed such a sophisticated system of simulation that you could actually right. simulate an entire trip to the moon and back in a studio. So to me, it's very obvious. At some point, yeah. somebody said, you know what? Okay, so we're not going to make it, but we're not going to look like idiots right. and tell the world right. that we didn't do it. We have this system which basically simulates every single, and people don't know what the real thing is like. So if we tell them that this is the moon, this is the moon, because they don't yeah. have anything to compare with. We don't have the Russian missions with astronauts dance, dancing yeah, on the moon yeah, so yeah, we can yeah, compare. Yeah. So let's use the simulation system and, and and that's what they did, I think. I, I know, I think it was in your your documentary or in something else where Werner von Braun said, we don't have the fuel, like the weight doesn't work right. And, and in LA, when I first got to LA just last year, I looked up in the sky one night, it was the craziest thing. And there was like a curly cue. It was the craziest thing, just a big white curl in the sky. And I looked into it and it was a rocket like Elon Musk or something. And they used some crazy new fuel. And I realized that 
that I, I word of Ron Braun was probably right that they couldn't do it with that kind of fuel and they needed a new fuel. And I think now they have it. So now maybe they can go. Uh, Who knows? I, I, I still don't think they can go. Just think of something. The so-called return to the moon was first planned under Bush in 2004. Then the mission was suspended, delayed, then suspended, then canceled. Then the return to the moon was moved to Obama period um, hmm. in, 20, in 2012. Uh, Ob under Obama, we were supposed to go back to the moon. We didn't. Uh, it was moved to 2016, sorry, to eight, to right. 2008, 2016. In 16, we were supposed to go back with Trump. The project was called, um, I don't remember, Orion, I think. Project oh, yeah. Orion never took off. We never went to the moon. They keep postponing. Now it was 22, now it's 2024. And now they're privatizing it so they don't have to look like they're doing it. And what about Mars? Do you think they're driving around on Mars? Uh, Possibly with the, with the rovers, yeah, that's possible. It's possible. It's, I would I would give it fifty percent that it's real and fifty percent now, but it doesn't matter. Humans cannot go there. That's for yeah, sure, right? Because right. the trip is inconceivable. Yeah. But even even the moon going back is supposed to be so easy because we did it so easily fifty yeah, years yeah. ago. And we back yet. So I don't think it's a matter of fuel. I think there's something else oh, okay. that has to do that has to do with radiation. That really does. Oh, not the allow. Van Allen radiation yeah, belts. I think I always, that really is the problem. I always joke yeah. that, you know, let me just, I'll just lend you my cell phone and then you can just go right to the moon. Cause they, they say like the computing power was less than what's in my cell phone right now. And I laugh. I'm like, that's so silly that they ever could have made the argument that they were, that they had the, the calculating ability to do that when, the, when this thing has more power than they had, right? Isn't that what they say? Well, that's one of the arguments. I don't particularly like that argument because it's impossible to prove. I, I always pick my arguments only if you're able to prove them beyond any reasonable doubt. That's, so, for example, yes. Yes. The, this thing about, this thing about the, the power, well, they can always tell you, oh, no, all you need to do is the computation. It was done by hand. You can yeah. see the little computer yeah. that says enter and you get a result. I mean, theoretically, yeah. yes. it's possible. There are things that are not possible. And those are the ones. For example, let me give you one example. There are some recordings from the moon uh, of conversations between the astronauts and the moon in which the answer that comes back from the moon, from the astronauts on the moon, takes less, takes less half the time that it should take for the question to reach the moon and come back. In other words, if, if you're on the moon and, I, and I'm talking to you on the phone or any radio communication, I say, Monica, how are you? And it takes 1.3 seconds for you to hear me. Then you say, oh, I'm fine, thank you. It takes another 1.3 seconds to come back. So 2.6 total. When I ask a question, I cannot hear your answer before 2.6 seconds. And that is if you answer immediately. If you have to think about how you are, it takes longer. <laughs> right. In some cases, you have 0.9 seconds between the question and the answer. And that is technically, physically impossible. That is what I call evidence, solid evidence that you cannot dispute. And in fact, nobody can dispute that. Those things that I found, the little things that you just know, this is not possible. The other, another thing is how do they do the, how do they do the broadcast from the little, with the little umbrella they had, which was moving, was waving. How do they broadcast to the moon, to the, to the earth, you know, the live shows, 
when this umbrella says in the own in the in the in the technical uh, specifications that the angle with the Earth should always remain between uh, two degrees, otherwise you miss the signal completely. And you can see this thing going back and forth, <laughs> up and down, and you never lose the connection anyway. That is not right. possible. It's just not possible. There are things like that, little things that actually pin the problem down and to which nobody has given a serious answer yet. Well, that was what was so great about American Moon. It was very narrow focus on what you knew, on what the people you were interviewing you knew, what, about how the photographs could not have been what we were told they were. And that was enough. That's all you the need. Photography, the photography was what started me on that film. It wasn't my conspiracy theorist mentality. It was really my professional background. When I saw the pictures of the astronauts on the moon taken in backlight, there was what we call a miracle for us photographers. Yes. I, you know, I, I started working in the 70s as an assistant, so I was using the same cameras, the same film, mm. same lenses that the astronauts allegedly used. And I know, and I know that you cannot get those kind of pictures with that kind of equipment unless you bring with, with you along extra lighting, extra reflectors, and extra stuff, which the astronauts alleged, uh, uh, officially did not have. So we those, should start photographers for moon pictures, landing truth. Yeah, when, when I saw those pictures at first, the first time in about 2000, the NASA put them all out on the internet, you know. I, I looked at them and I called the photographer I, I learned the trade from, who's a very famous photographer. Her name is Toscani. He's one of the top 10 in the world, so to speak. And he was working for American Bazaar, American Vogue, Elle, everything. He, he's done everything. I called him up. We were still friends. And I said, Oliviero, that's his name. Uh, what did you think when you saw the, the, for the first time, when you saw the moon pictures for the first time? And his answer was, and I quote him, he said, had they asked me to do them, I would have done a much better job. <laughs> he skipped over the part where it's like, so obviously. That's when I knew. Yeah. That's when I knew I said, okay, so it's not me. The conspiracy, we have a problem yes. here. Houston, we have a problem and a big yes. one. Yes. Yeah. 